Good morning again. As we work our way through the book of Acts, we will be finishing about four weeks from now on Labor Day Sunday, so it's not going to be an unending journey. We're going to be taking some hop, skips, and jumps through Acts. Today we're going to be focusing on Paul's farewell conversation with the uh, elders at the church of Ephesus as he was on his way back. And I think we have a map of Paul's third missionary journey. Just to remind you a little bit, Paul took off from Antioch, headed back through what's now Turkey, through a bunch of the cities that he had seen before. Then you see that he came to Ephesus, where he spent, we talked about that last week, two weeks, where the riot was. And then he went back over to Greece, and he went to Athens and Corinth, and then came back. And then from Troas, he headed by sea and ended up at a little place called Miletus, where he met the Ephesian elders there and said his final farewell to them. And then you'll notice he goes by ship back to, uh, back to Jerusalem. So we're, we're, we're in the little town of Miletus on the shore where the Ephesian elders have come to um, say farewell to, to Paul, knowing that they will not see him again in this life. I don't know how many of you have had the experience of saying goodbye to someone that you know you will not see again in this life. I know some of you have had the experience of saying goodbye to someone who has died, which is a little bit of a different thing. But to say goodbye to a community, a group of people that you know and love, and know you will not see them again for however long your lives last is a little bit of a different thing. I've done it a few times in moving uh, internationally, and it is quite a, um, quite a powerful thing to have happen to, to at the airport say goodbye to a group of people and think, hey, I, I likely, if I live another 20 or 30 years, I probably won't see these people again. So it's a very personal um, talk that Paul has with these Ephesian elders, and um, it's an example for how those of us who are leaders in the church, at whatever level we're a leader in the church, um, it's, it's an example for us to think about in terms of how we relate to the people of the church whom we serve. But I don't this morning want to limit it to that group, because all of us are in relationship to people. All of us are relationship to people for whom we are an example. It doesn't even matter how young you are. If you're in sixth grade, there's a fourth grader watching you, or there's another sixth grader watching you. There's always someone watching you. And seeing how you do things and seeing how you speak and seeing how you live your life. And so as we go through this, these words of Paul this morning briefly, I just... I want you to remember that this is also for you and maybe to think, who is, who is watching me? And what kind of a message am I giving to those people who are watching me and perhaps uh, following my example? I'm going to read it in three sections. This is going to be a typical three-pointer this morning, which I don't do very often, but it just lends itself to that pretty naturally. We're going to start with Acts chapter 20. Uh, we'll read the first 10 verses from 17 um, 17 to 20, 27. 
Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And the verse that I just want to spend a couple minutes with you on this morning is verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And here's what Willie James Jennings has to say about this, uh, this section of Paul. Luke is giving us the beginnings of a cruciform existence where my life has been taken from me and given back to me, not as my own, but as God's own life. The values of my life have been transferred to God, and I no longer hold it in my hands or by my efforts. And over the last years, over the last decade or two, uh, people have come up with the term the cruciform life, and Jennings uses that word here. Luke is giving us the beginnings of a cruciform existence. What is cruciform Christianity? One of the uh, great books on this topic was written by Dr. Michael Gorman. It's called Cruciformity, Paul's Narrative Spirituality of the Cross. And he puts it this way, Love is cruciform for Paul insofar as it is faithful to the self-emptying love that Jesus Christ embodied throughout his life and ultimately expressed in his selfless, loving death on the cross. A cruciform way of life is uniting yourself with Christ in such a way that you empty yourself of yourself and live the way Christ has shown us and told us how to live. It really comes out of of the very famous passage that I'm sure you all know from Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Cruciform living is participation in, it's uniting yourself with Christ in such a way that you lose your life, but you don't really lose it, you get it back. And the life that you get back is Christ's life. And now here's the quote that I wanted to share from uh, Michael Gorman, which I think says it in a little different way. Cruciform love resists the temptation to make myself the focus of everything, even my own spirituality. Cruciform love refuses to exercise rights, powers, privilege, spiritual gifts, and so forth, if their use will do me good, but someone else, or a community of which I am a part, harm. It liberates me from myself and for the other. Cruciform living stops focusing on me only and focuses on the other and does what is good for the other. And that's this theme we've been seeing all the way through Acts. That this community of Jesus followers is being formed and they're going out into the empire of their time and they're emptying themselves by following Jesus and doing what is good for the weak and for the oppressed and for the marginalized. That is cruciform living. And when Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. But Paul is planting himself in this crucified, cruciform way of living. And then he goes on, and we'll start reading again from Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul is giving here a warning to the leaders of the Ephesian church. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. I'd like to make two comments on this. The first one is, we tend to think about heresy as wrong doctrine or wrong teaching. And there have been many heresies throughout the history of the church. And it is certainly true that wrong teaching or wrong doctrine, particularly when it touches the heart 
of who God is and who Jesus is and what the gospel is is heresy. But I'd like to add to that mix the importance that the New Testament places on practice. And if you read Paul, particularly like when he exhorts his young protege, Timothy, you see Paul focusing very much also on practice. Look at this quote from 1 Timothy 4, verse 11 through 16. He says to Timothy, command and teach these things. So there's this teaching element. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. That's the practical part. In speech, in conduct, that's what you do. In love, that's something you do. In faith, another word for faith is allegiance, that's something you do. And in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice. See that word? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. The NIV translated this way. Watch your life and your doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So what I'd like to suggest this morning is that for Paul... The warning is not just about false teaching. It's also about false doing. Things that aren't of the kingdom. Things that aren't loving. Things that aren't caring. Things that aren't the emptying of ourself like Jesus did. It's all of those things. And the second comment I'd like to make is that the New Testament often speaks of false teachers, and it does again in this passage, of arriving of of arising from inside the church. Now, my my theological education, and probably some of yours also to the extent you had it, taught me that, that heretics come from outside. Who are heretics? Well, when I was going to seminary, the Pope was one. The German theologians were heretics. The liberation theology, uh, liberation theology was a her- heresy. If you're following some of the discussions in the evangelical world today, critical race theory is considered to be a heresy, driving a stake at the heart of the gospel. So they're all coming from, it's, it's them. Remember last week when we talked about uh, the riot in Ephesus and Demetrius, and we suggested that Demetrius maybe isn't just them, but he's also us. The church is heretical. We are heretical. When we're not practicing, we're not characterized by practicing this example in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. Heretics are not only those who who teach wrong doctrine. They're those who don't practice the call of the kingdom to empty themselves for the good of the other. Who claim and abuse power. Who participate without reflection or repentance in the extractive economy, in racism, 
materialism and militarism. What I'm just suggesting here is that is that this heresy is also practice. And it can very easily arise from within us when we're not paying attention to the call of the kingdom of God in the practical aspects of not only our personal lives, but the life of the world around us. And then Paul gives the Ephesians his final mission. We're reading from 20 verses 32 to 35. And listen very carefully to Paul's last words to the Ephesians. And now, Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In all these things, I have shown you, verse 35, that by working hard, we must help the weak And remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, just thinking about this, in my mind, is a little bit shocking. These are Paul's last words to these people that he's never going to see again. And the last thing he tells them is to care for the weak and remember that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Those are pretty shocking last words. Care for the weak, and it's better to give than to receive. Listen to Jennings. We are called, quote should appear, We are called to embody a freedom in the flow of the economic circuit and a power to redirect its current toward life. The church struggles mightily in this very matter. Often our failure is a failure of sight. We fail to see the circuit at work all around us and thereby reduce this revolutionary word of Paul to a sentimental gesture of almsgiving or to an apologetic for economic self-sufficiency. An economic system must be overturned in us, and it begins with the overseers. Paul is overturning an economic system that rewards the strong and keeps the weak out. Paul says, no, in the church we do something different. We help the weak, and we know that it's better to give than to receive. And Jennings goes on. Luke's comments about money and possession echo the founding moment of the congregation of spirit-filled disciples who sold their possessions, you remember Acts 2 and Acts 4, and gave their money for the sake of the common. Their own needs did not disappear. Those needs simply merged with the needs of the common, and together they sought a shared, flourishing life. 
Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders, this church where he had spent two years, were, care for the weak. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And you can only do that if you're rooted in this cruciform life, if you're united with Christ, who went before us in emptying himself and becoming a servant to serve those who were weak and marginalized and left outside. William Willimon, one of my favorite preachers and theologians, told this story. He said, a parishioner once said to me, I'm lying in this bed, not sure if I'm going to make it out of this alive, frightened and worried, and Jesus has the nerve to waltz in here and suggest that I ought to single-handedly fund the church's food ministry. As sick as I am, I thought others should be looking after me, not my looking after them. And Willimon says, I asked her, so how did Jesus respond? And she replied, as far as I can tell, she said, Jesus said, I don't care. What did you think you were getting into when you were baptized? This lady's on her sick bed, wondering perhaps if she's going to die, waiting for people to care for her. And Jesus says to her, go give a whole bunch or whatever, a whole bunch of money to the food ministry, the church. She's saying, but I need care. And she says, I don't care about that. What did you think you were getting into when you were baptized? You're baptized into Jesus, into this cruciform way of living. And it's a way, it's, it's a way of life that gives. It's a way of life that empties ourself. And that places the needs and the concerns of the other above ourselves. And I can imagine that you may be thinking now, sounds like a pretty heavy burden. I now have to go out and do all this stuff and I have to go out and empty myself and I have to put the needs of others in front of myself and and it's really hard. And it goes against all my natural inclinations. And furthermore, I do have needs, and those needs are legitimate. And where are all the lines? It's not easy. What I'd like to conclude with is this. Emptying yourself and following Jesus in this cruciform life ends up leading to real joy. Remember that passage from Hebrews? Jesus went to the cross knowing the joy that lay before him. If we are not going to empty ourselves as we live this cruciform life, our selfishness and self-centeredness is going to kill us. The only true life is to be found in being rooted in Jesus and emptying ourselves for the other And then finding his joy. 
You've heard this quote from me before, but I'm going to use it again. It's one of my favorites of all time, Frederick Buechner. Vocation is the place where the world's greatest need and a person's greatest joy meet. See that combination? The world's greatest need and your greatest joy meet. Paul lived a life, we all know this, through all of his suffering, he lived a life of joy. He just did. Through all the terrible things and all the effort and energy he went through in his whole life, if there's one word that characterizes Paul, it's joy. And what he's saying to the Ephesian elders and what he's saying to us today in August of 2021 is only when you're, when you're catching on to this cruciform way of living, when you're united with Christ and emptying yourself for the good of the other is joy to be found. So I commend Paul's words to you to burn into your life and burn in your hearts and continue on this path of cruciform living, not just for yourself, but for all those who are around you, and especially for those who are watching you. Amen.